morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and today is February 20th, 2014. This is broadcast number 57. And if you're listening to this program and if you listen often, you are probably thinking, hmm, he doesn't sound himself. And that's because I'm not really myself. Um, I am who I am, but my voice is not cooperating very well this week. And uh, so I apologize up front, um, but it's that time of year where I think people are all struggling in some way with illnesses and those things. So anyway, just a programming note if you're taking notes at home. Um, So we'll plug ahead, we'll press ahead and do the best we can uh, through the next 30 minutes or so as we talk today with our guest, Dr. Derek Thomas. He is going to be um, speaking at the Greenville uh, Seminary Theological Conference that's being held March 11th through 13th here in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, he'll be speaking on the topic of providence and middle knowledge. Now, you may be thinking, hmm, what, what is providence I know about, kind of? What is middle knowledge? That sounds like some crazy thing. Um, Well, we're going to talk with him in just a minute about those subjects um, and briefly discuss them with him. And and at the same time, we'll have him tell us a little bit about himself. As many of you know, uh, probably know Dr. Thomas and and, um, his background, but we'll have him talk a little bit about himself and and how he came to be the minister at uh, First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. Let me give everybody a real quick update as to what we're trying to accomplish over the next few weeks. We're exclusively talking with conference speakers and and, um, men that will be coming to speak at the Spring Theology Conference. If you haven't signed up for the conference, I would encourage you to do so. You can do it at gpts.edu. That's where all the information on the conference, dates, speakers, topics, uh, hotel information, travel information, whatever you need is there on the website, and you can sign up very easily right there. In addition to that, Monday evening before the conference, we'll be having a banquet uh, that will be honoring uh, the life and work of Dr. Morton Smith. Um, many of the students here are very excited about that as, as men who are training for the ministry have had the, pl- the pleasure and the privilege of studying under a man who we consider to be a giant in the faith. And um, so that's going on Monday evening before the conference. And, and again, that uh, sign up for that is coming to a close relatively soon. So you want to get involved if you're interested in that as well. In addition to that, of course, there's always the website, confessingourhope.com, for the podcast and the GPTS mobile app for chapel sermons, lectures, theology conferences, in addition to this podcast. So use, use those things, stay abreast of what's going on in the podcast, and use them for your own edification and information as you're able. Now, as I indicated, we'll be talking with Dr. Derek Thomas today on his conference subject, the subject of providence and middle knowledge. So, Derek, uh, Dr. Thomas, it's it's great to have you on. Um, I know you're very busy um, with things that are uh, going on there in the life of the church in Columbia, but it's great to have you on, and, and for, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today about um, about your conference material. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure and uh, an honor to be asked to speak once again at uh, the Greenville uh, Theological Seminary uh, Conference, and uh, to be back at that again. Uh, as you were speaking, my memory went all the way back to 1976, hmm. uh, when I sat in Dr. Smith's, Morton Smith's uh, systematic theology classes. 
Mm. Uh, so he was my professor uh, almost. I mean, we're almost going back 40 years now. And um, I remember him well and uh, remember the the lengthy uh, citations from somebody called Bavink, and it was only available in Dutch. So we <laughs> right. were totally dependent on his uh, translation of this. Uh, and of course, now we have Bavink in 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 very up to date and modern English. And uh, but I owe a great deal to uh, Morton Smith. And uh, Dr. Smith was uh, he left I think in my second year at seminary to become the stated clerk of the of the PCA General Assembly, uh, but still had an office as I remember on the Jackson campus and mm, uh, a little what what I recall was a white hut of some kind and that was that was the stated clerk's uh, office and um, yes he's a he's an incredible uh, man and uh, thankful to God for him yes the Lord has certainly used him to minister and train men for many years and um, well It'll. Um, I, I had the pleasure of sitting under him at, towards the end of his time here as an active work, and um, it's just a privilege to just interact with a man. He's godly. His humility is a great example to men that are training, <laughs> training to do this work, and it's just wonderful to have that have that chance. Now, in some sense, you've already told us a little bit about yourself, but maybe. For those, for for the benefit of the listeners that don't know who you are, which I, I frankly I would be really shocked that people who follow Greenville Seminary, this podcast, would not know your name and maybe know a little bit about you. Why don't you give us a little bit of a background as to maybe um, your roots and how it is you came maybe to America and what you're currently doing now? Uh, my name is uh, Derek Thomas, uh, spelled D-E-R-E-K. I have to say that because it invariably gets spelt with an I-C-K. Um, mm. I grew up in Wales. Um, the brief story, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I was converted when I was 18. Uh, I was a sophomore at uh, university studying uh, physics and, and, and mathematics. Uh, and uh, my good friend of mine sent me a copy of John Stott's Basic Christianity, and I read it, and uh, within a couple of days, I had become a believer, and uh, then uh, fell into the arms of somebody called Jeff Thomas. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Thomas had just been called, well, he'd been there six or seven years, at the Baptist Church, Alfred Place Baptist Church in Aberystwyth. He is still there today. Uh, he is an incredible individual and uh, uh, influenced me more than probably anybody else uh, in those uh, three or four or maybe five years uh, from 1971 to 76. Hmm. Uh, I graduated, uh, went to a liberal Presbyterian Seminary in Aberystwyth uh, while I was uh, working alongside uh, Jeff. Uh, of course, I was a Reformed Baptist at the time. And then uh, then uh, met uh, the president of RTS at a Banner of Truth conference. Uh, and the long and the short of that was that um, I was offered a scholarship to go and study at uh, this seminary, which I'd never heard of, RTS in Jackson. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I remember looking through the catalogue and seeing uh, Morton Smith's name and Dick DeWitt was there at the time and Greg Banson and, and, and a whole lot of others. And uh, uh, I remember calling the seminary, this was May, middle of May, saying, look, there's one sort of problem. I've been dating this girl for four years, wasn't sure about leaving her behind for two, three years. And uh, Sam Patterson, who was the president, said... Uh, well, marry the girl and bring her with you. <laughs> so that was the middle of May, and we got married in uh, the end of July. And two weeks later, we were in Jackson, Mississippi. So we went wow. from Wales uh, to Mississippi. And yes, it was as much of a cultural shock as you can imagine. Uh, and then did my MDiv uh, there, and uh, then went back to Britain. Uh, I was the minister in Belfast. Uh, with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, uh, nothing to do with EPC in the States. Um, and I was there, I was at that church for almost 18 years. Uh, in the meantime, I had, had started doing doctoral work, did a PhD on Calvin and Providence, hence, hence perhaps the reason why I'm speaking on this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that that sort of got me back into academia. I'd never, ever aspired to be an academic, nor do I really consider myself an academic. I'm, first of all, a minister. And uh, But the seminary asked me to go back and teach. So in 1996, what is that, 18 years ago, uh, I went back to teach systematics. Uh, I mean, teaching the courses that Dr. Smith used to teach. Uh, wow. which is humbling in itself. Um, sure. Uh, and I was in Jackson for 17 years, uh, and I was also on staff at First Presbyterian with Ligon Duncan. I was the uh-huh. evening preacher, basically. And then two and a half years ago, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who was then the senior minister here at First Pres in, in uh, Columbia, asked me to come on board with him, and I, I said no for a year or more, I'm sure, and eventually caved in. And uh, so I still teach for RTS um, in Atlanta. I, I do that every Monday, and uh, and uh, but I'm, I'm now Sinclair retired back in August of last year, and then uh, about two weeks later, I was called as the senior minister. Hmm. Yeah, I remember. I remember when that happened. Um, when um, Pastor Ferguson, um, when that all went out public, you know, there was the big discussions um, uh, on the blogospheres and social networking. You know, who, okay, who's gonna? Yeah, who's gonna replace? You know, what's the? You know, who's the likely candidate yeah. and everything else? And, you know, and and of course, you know, you know, I even made the comment. I said, well, they have Derek Thomas right there. I mean, what, I don't know why they want to. What they need a search committee for? They, they they've got a man right there. <laughs> There's not much to do. He's right there. It's it's pretty much it's hand it's 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 hand wrapped. It's gift wrapped. All they got to do is just ask him. <laughs> but anyway, well, it's it's great to um to talk with you and to well, let um, me also add, uh, you know, serving as the senior minister at first present in Colombia is about as great an honor as you could ever imagine, especially if you're a southerner, because then I'm not, but, but, uh, you know, when I, when I, I was going to say slap the pulpit, but, but it's made of, of a kind of granite marble, uh, mm-hmm. but it's Thornwell's pulpit, you know, and, uh, 
when I sort of grasp hold of the side of it, uh, as I do sometimes when I'm preaching, it, it's uh, it's extraordinary to think that that is um, that that is uh, Thornwell's pulpit that I'm standing in, and uh, and Gerardo uh, who preached here, and uh, and and just. Uh, just the sheer history of this uh, church, which is 218 years old. Yeah, I, I had the I was, as I was mentioning to you off air before we started it. Uh, Doctor Nick Wilborn, who's a professor here at Greenville Seminary, um, takes his students when he's teaching through um, Presbyterian church history. He takes the students on a Southern Presbyterian tour through Columbia and Charleston, and the first stop on the tour is the is First Church in Columbia. And I remember the first time I went and stood there and listened to him lecture on men like Jared Owen Thornwell. I thought, I'm standing in the very room (laughs) where, and I'm standing in front of the very pulpit. And I actually stood in the pulpit um, and got pictures, of course, you know, um, and uh, just, just amazing to be on in a place that has such historical significance and influence um, for Southern Presbyterian theology through the 1800s and beyond. And, um, and then of course, going to Charleston was even, uh, more exciting uh seeing the first presbyterian the oldest presbyterian church in the country and yeah. on john's island and just yeah. it's just a tremendous tremendous blessing and i know i've benefited much from your own ministry um personally I, you came and spoke at commencement i think a couple of years back here at the seminary and it was a very edifying um sermon and so i've I sort of followed you as it were as you've made these this trek across the atlantic and um so I've benefited much from from your labors uh, in the scriptures as well as your writing and, and other things. So, but anyway, uh, our our subject today is what you're going to be talking about. And obviously, for because of time constraints, we can't get into all the nuances. I trust you'll do that when you're here in March. But you're going to be talking about the the issue of providence and middle knowledge. And we'll just set middle knowledge aside for a second. Let's let's talk about providence. What do we when we use that term providence i mean i think we throw it around a lot and we all kind of know what it means um but what is it well if you if you simply break the word up to it you know we we always have to be aware of the uh etymological fallacy that a word means what its root means but in this case uh i think it's safe enough uh, pro video and uh to see beforehand um is the meaning of uh, pr- providence literally, and it's uh, it's a comprehensive doctrine that nothing happens without God willing it to happen, without God willing it to happen before it happens, and without God willing it to happen in the very way that it happens. Hmm. Uh, so, so nothing epitomizes more the total sovereignty of God over every event. Uh, in our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, all of it is superintended by the sovereignty of God. Uh, now, there are some caveats that emerge, um, you know, that God doesn't uh, doesn't cause any any uh, violation uh, of the will of the creature, that, that, that uh, there is such a thing as uh, freedom of choice within the capacities of our natures. So we're not automatons, we're not robots. Um, but we cannot choose outside or beyond uh, what our nature will allow us to choose. So, so the ultimate good we, we cannot choose. Uh, and uh, 
God uh, uh, God is in total control. I mean, that's that's the doctrine of providence. So it's a very pastoral doctrine uh, mm. that we all succumb to and 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 flee to in moments of trial. Uh, that uh, these things too are in His control, and that they are meant for a purpose. Uh, because the alternative is that we live in uh, a universe where uh, the future is unknown, where there are chance events uh, that are beyond even the knowledge of God to predict uh, or control. And um, so it's a it's a very pastoral doctrine. Uh, I was led into it uh, by reading John Calvin's uh, 159 sermons on Job that he preached in 1554, 1555 uh, in Geneva. And uh, these sermons, of course, were taken down and uh, transcribed from from Denis Ragunier's uh, notes into French and, and then later translated into English by a man called Arthur Golding. And those sermons have been uh, reprinted in facsimile form. And there may be, I, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but there may be a modern translation of those sermons emerging within the next year or two. Um, well, that would be wonderful. I have the facsimile version right. of those. Well, I've just and read, uh, and I don't want to say too much, but I've just read a modern uh, a person who's translated them uh, into modern English, uh, the whole the whole 159 sermons there. Leroy Nixon, I think, in the 1950s, some of us will remember, published... Uh, a series of about 20 of the sermons on Job uh, and Erdman's, back when Erdman's published stuff like that uh, in the 1950s. Uh, but uh, this is the complete uh, set of sermons, and I'm I'm really, really excited if, if that uh, gets published. And I, I, I really think that they will be published in about probably in a year to a year and a half, I would say. Yeah, that would be um, outstanding. I mean, I like the facsimile edition, but it's a little tedious at times uh, to read through. But um, just because it's that's what it is, it's a facsimile. But um, anyway, now uh, certainly you're familiar with the shorter catechism, um, and in question eleven of the shorter catechism deals with, in, in a very brief way, um, God's works of providence. And there in that catechism, the highlight the highlighted aspects are is the fact that God works, I'm just going to read it, God's works of providence are his most, most holy, wise, and powerful. And here's the thing, the preserving. How does that play out of God's providence? What is the Shorter Catechism driving at there? Well, uh, I mean, multi-level uh, answer, I think. Uh, I mean, he, he he preserves his elect, he preserves his people, mm-hmm. uh, he takes care of them so that nothing uh, will happen to them outside of his will and control, but he also preserves uh, the creation in which the elect are to be found. Uh, thinking of the Noahic Covenant, for example, uh, God's promise uh, that uh, that natural disasters uh, or whatever w- will not uh, destroy mankind and that God will not send a judgment uh, like he did uh, at the time of Noah. So that kind of preservation. So from the microcosm to the macrocosm, so not a hair falls to the ground, but 
by the command uh, of God, and and those of us with with uh, who are follically uh, challenged, uh, I'm one of them. Uh, that's uh, that's more reassuring every day uh, for the six hairs <laughs> sure. that I have left. Um, so not just uh, not just preserving the entire vastness of this universe mm. that gets vaster. Uh, Every day, as we, uh, I mean, literally so, as it expands, but uh, as the Hubble telescope has enabled us to see parts of the universe that no human being has ever seen before, uh, but right down to the microcosm, uh, everything in its totality is is kept in being uh, by by God. Mm. And it really highlights what you said earlier about the pastoral aspect of this doctrine. It's not just some heady theological thing, but it's actually something we can grab hold of. And you mentioned that not a hair from our head falls without without God's knowledge, without his knowing, without his governing that, which is the next point of the shorter catechism question, and, and, and you know that he cares for the sparrow and, and feeds the birds of the air, but how much more precious are you know his those he made in his image, especially his own elect, and... And, and it so flies, it's not just a feel. You know, it flies in the face of, say, deism, uh, mm. that God is uh, like somebody winds up a clock and then just lets the clock tick away, but he is no longer involved. Uh, and in some of the discussions that I read about, uh, about uh, intelligent design and so on of the universe, uh, I mean, it, 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 kind of, it kind of ends up with a deistic view of God that there is there is evidence of design in the universe, but but the designer has is abs, is like an absentee landlord and and he can't be found. Um, but the doctrine of providence is God's total involvement uh, at every at every moment of time. So there is a concurrence, if I can use a technical term. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a concurrence of God's activity and our activity uh and and that concurrence is seen uh at its height in you know words like peter of the pentecost to the jews in jerusalem it was you who, who took him and slew him by wicked hands but it was all according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of god so it was man's event and god's event at the same time and and these and these are compatible. Uh, so it, the doctrine of providence is a compatibilist view of the universe that God is involved in every in every issue. There's there is nothing in which God is not involved in some way. Hmm. Um, How does this play itself out? In, in in certainly the people who like to always find something to object about. Um, you, you 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 touched on this earlier, I think a little bit. And but when it comes to sin. Uh, how does that relate to the providence of God? Well, you know, our own standards here uh, introduced some caveats, and one was that violence isn't offered to the will of the creatures, but another of the caveats that's offered uh, is that um, is that God is not the author of sin. Now, the, the, you know, our, our forefathers here, uh, the divines, didn't explain how that was, simply that that has to be, uh, that you cannot impute sin to God. So God suddenly creates a universe in which sin is possible. 
so in in that sense, God is involved. Yes, even even in in the sin of the universe, but He's not the author of it. He's not culpable uh, for sin, and and that's about all. You know, sometimes in theology, all you can do is take is is go up to the boundary and say you can't cross this boundary, and uh, you know if somebody can come up with an explanation as to how it is that God can control the universe and not be the author of sin, you know, that's going to be a bestseller because every Hmm. philosopher Hmm. and theologian has attempted to answer that. And uh, there are some things I think that are beyond our ability to understand. And that's, you know, that is one of them that the the secret things belong unto the Lord, our God, but those things which are revealed uh, belong unto us and to our children. And, um, we certainly cannot impute sin to God, but neither can we have a universe in which God isn't in complete control because the alternative then is a universe uh, that in some way limits either the sovereignty of God or the, um, or the knowledge of God, the omniscient, omniscience of God. Because if, if there are aspects of the universe that are beyond his control, then then they're also beyond his knowledge because he doesn't know what's going to happen if he is not in control of it. Then, then that aspect is is somehow governed by a freedom, which not only limits his sovereignty but limits his knowledge. So God would then not be omniscient, and uh, mm. and and that of course is a window into this whole topic of of monism, Molinism, or open theism. Or, or middle knowledge, uh, as it's variously called. Sure. Now, that's the other aspect of your conference lecture, and, and and I think, as I said earlier, I think most of my most of the listeners are probably have a pretty good grasp of providence, at least at some level. Um, but middle knowledge may be one of those areas that people may have heard the term, maybe they've they've been introduced to it in some capacity, but it's sort of one of those moving targets they're not really sure exactly what that's all about can you succinctly if possible i know that there's multi layers even to this one from what i understand um, even in my own studies but what is middle knowledge it sounds like a crazy term but yeah i mean middle knowledge has been around uh i mean there i mean plato even talks about middle knowledge but but middle knowledge as as is currently being spoken of is really uh, taken to uh, Louis de Molinar, who was a 15th century in the 1400s, 15th century Spanish Jesuit priest philosopher. Uh, so, so it was certainly a, a view that was known at the time of the Reformation. Calvin addresses it briefly. Uh, certainly, the Westminster Divines are aware of the doctrine of middle knowledge. Macovius, um, for example, has a lengthy treatment on on um, middle knowledge in the 17th century. But but the view is: take a text like um, "Woe to you, uh, uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida." Uh, this is Jesus now saying, "Woe to you, Beth- Chorazin and Bethsaida," because if the gospel had been preached in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. So here's here's Jesus uh, saying something about a possible uh, scenario that, that that doesn't actually materialize. He's talking about a a possible future, a possible um, 
a set of circumstances that if he had gone to Tyre and Sidon, uh, they would have repented, but the covenant cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin had not repented. And, and so he's talking about a, a, a possible future. So the idea or the concept of middle knowledge is that there are there are there are parallel or 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 multi uh, possible futures. You know, if 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 you do this or you decide that, then the future is going to change. And we all we all know science fiction narratives, oh. uh, futuristic narratives where people time travel and and so on and and you know if this if this event occurs you can go into that future i certainly can think of an episode of star trek that was based entirely on molinism trying to get to a possible future now what what are the i mean why would anyone ever want to think in those terms and and what what has governed middle knowledge is is the idea of of true human Liberty. I mean, if God is in, in control of every event, how how then am I free to make choice? Uh, no matter what that choice may be. I mean, the fact that I'm actually wearing a red tie this morning and not a blue one. You know, what, what is is that a real choice on my part? Uh, and is that compatible with absolute and total sovereignty? Now, in the debates, of course, between Calvinism and Arminianism, you know, that issue comes center stage. And if you want to maintain true libertarianism whilst at the same time um, defending Mm -hmm. some notion of divine sovereignty, how can you do that? And one of the ways uh, that that has been advocated, and this was Louis de Molina's view and middle knowledge, and it was taken up in the 20th century uh, by, oh, by folk like uh, Gregory Boyd and um, Richard Swinburne and William uh, Hasker and Clark Pinnock and John Saunders and and so on. uh, earlier in the 20th century, by process theologians, for sure, and and more latterly by those who otherwise would have been regarded as as evangelical. Here's a way. There's a possible future out there in which I make a true, uh, free, unforced decision, uh, say, to accept Christ or to ask Christ into my heart, hmm. and. And that is the future that God actualizes. He, he, he has actualized one of those uh, presumably in, infinite number of possible futures uh, in which that was the decision that I made, and it is a free human decision. Now, the problem with it is, is you know, the next question is, why did God actualize that future and not hmm, another future. Right. So you can't you right. can't avoid at the end of the day an aspect of total sovereignty. Um, but it's a, it's an attempt to uh, to understand reality with free will, uh, free will in its in its most basic concept, free will as 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 absolute human autonomy. Uh, and how is that compatible? 
with uh, with 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 any form of sovereignty. And and what you have to do then is if the future is 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 open in some way if there is if there is such a thing as true, true and absolute um human liberty uh then god cannot know that future um mm. and and therefore the 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 philosophical position necessarily limits to some degree uh, God's knowledge, uh, God's omniscience. Now, it depends on who is advocating this view as to what it is that's being sacrificed here in terms of God's knowledge. And some will say God knows the big picture, but he doesn't know the little picture. But, you know, it, it only takes one one errant will to skew the entire future. You know, if 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 X and Y decide, you know, not to have children, then the product right. of that marriage, you know, will not be the next president of the United States, who actually influences, you know, the Cold War or, or whatever. So, so it, you know, it only takes one 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 errant decision to skew the entire future of the universe here. Uh, so it's not it's not it's not easy to say God knows the big picture, but he doesn't know the little picture because the, the consequence of bringing in middle knowledge as a, as a philosophical idea to try and solve the issue of free will is that, that nothing about the future can, can be known with certainty. And I, and I think at the end, you cannot know with certainty that there will be a second coming. Uh, or 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 things of that magnitude. So you can't you can't limit it just to just to little things. Yeah, it's, it seems to me that it would fly in the face of all the prophetical utterances in Scripture. Right. Um, how can God guarantee these things to actually right. be fulfilled in the way that He said they would be, to the exact detail that He said they would be? Um, and, and and as you were talking, I I got I, I was thinking about the way Calvin constructed his institutes, and he started with the doctrine of God, he started with the knowledge of God, and in order to understand correctly any of these things, we must start there. Um, and, 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 I, and I can't help but think that these people, the people that hold to this middle knowledge pers- perspective are trying to unravel the theological aspects from man's perspective. And, and, and in some sense, and, and I know they wouldn't say this necessarily out loud, maybe they would, I don't know, but in some sense, neglecting or not giving due credence to the person and work and the being and the decrees and the ordination that God himself is. And and, and it seems like if we started there, then this middle knowledge thing just erodes instantaneously. Um, well, at one level, and the, and I, I don't want to go into this here, but at one level, I am I am not sure of the philosophical validity of the idea of middle knowledge. So I, I'm not even sure that philosophically the, the idea is sound. Mm. I, I think we can all project possible futures, you know, it, and, and, and we do that in our thinking process. And if I do this, that's likely to happen. And if I do that, you know, that future is likely to happen. And, and, and we do that every day in making decisions. Uh, what are the consequences of these decisions? And it's going to be a future like this, or it's going to be a future like that. So, so we do, we do think in those terms, but, but, uh, 
I think any view, any view that attempts to express uh, true and absolute human autonomy uh, over which God has absolutely no control whatsoever immediately violates our understanding of the doctrine of God. Uh, and, and, God and God is not a being infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and in his being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, but he is something much less than that. And I honestly think that the consequence of open theism, whilst, whilst it gave hope to solving the issue of liberty and sovereignty uh, in, in the sort of classic Arminian-Calvinist debate, um, the, the consequence of it is a, a denuded, a very much denuded God, uh, and actually the lack of any assurance about what the future will be. Yeah, I was going to ask that just from a pastoral perspective, that those who perhaps gravitate towards this mental knowledge position or even are fully in, fully entrenched in it, um, what do they, how do they deal with just personal crisis or issues? Well, actually, of it's life? very interesting. I mean, if you read, uh, if you read Greg Boyd, for example, uh, or or folk like him. I remember reading an open theist uh, on the book of Job because of my interest in the book of Job. Mm. And when Job says, uh, after the trial, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Right. So he has this terrible tragedy that's happened to him losing, losing 10 of his children. Right. And he's saying the Lord did this. And, and the, the open theist in his, in his sermon on Job, I was just intrigued. What would he say? And, and he said, the only thing that he could say that Job was wrong, uh, that this was just grief speaking, but he was wrong. And, and it's uh. interesting that a lot of open theists have wanted to sort of cast the blame here on principalities and powers and the demonic. And there's been a, there's been a, a huge interest uh, among open theists in, in uh, the, 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 the forces of evil and so on as being perhaps part of uh, the bigger picture of the explanation for culpability rather than rather than resort as job does to the refuge of the sovereignty of god in providence hmm. i guess i would counter them uh, probably not very well but i would attempt to say well if that's all true and the demonic forces and the principalities and the powers and the enemy of my soul is able to accomplish these things, then where, where was God, my father, when this process was actually taking place? I mean, where was he involved or not? Was he just standing by as an innocent bystander, as it were, watching this unfold? Well, sadly, we've all been to funerals uh, where mm -hmm. some minister or other has said something just like that. Uh, you know, in the in the tragic cases of, uh, say, a teenager's death or something, uh, you know, don't blame God because he wasn't there. His hands were tied. He wasn't looking, uh, no. and, and so on. And uh, as if as if the knowledge of an uncertain uh, universe is meant in any way to bring comfort that you can turn the corner and God isn't there. Uh, when I drive on these Columbia roads. I want the reassurance that God is around the corner. 
Yeah. Uh, the crazy thing. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. Yes, I know what you mean. So, so you know, a refuge to free will uh, is is of no pastoral help to me. No, I, I can't. I, I don't know how it would be. And uh, as someone who's training for the ministry, and and, and certainly going to have to wrestle through some of these issues with with people in the re- in in real life in the raw who are grieving over circumstances. I mean, what comfort can I possibly offer them if I just say, well, you know, God wasn't, you know, he just he took a vacation. Yeah. During I mean, that's there's no comfort in that. And and I don't know how they can pastorally even interact with grieving people and and people who are in deep uh deep re- uh, mourning over whatever circumstance they find themselves. I just don't know how that helps pastorally and I think it and I'm thankful that, that, that we got into that area because we can see then I think the connection as you're going to be giving it at the conference between God's providence and middle knowledge and how they do relate uh, almost in an antithetical way in a sense. Yes. And I'm still, I'm still thinking on, on the exact way I'm going to do that, but, but I do want to do it. Not, not simply from a philosophical point of view, uh, which Mm. frankly can, can reach into the stratosphere, but I, I want to do it from the pastoral point of view. That's you know, great. what is the what is the gain on a pastoral level of open theism? And actually, the gain is zero at the end of the day because you have lost so much uh, of the pastoral significance of God's sovereignty in times of difficulty. Um, uh, to gain what? To gain to gain some some notion uh, of human libertarianism, uh, but but that's uh, you know that's that's a that's a too high a price to pay uh, to solve the issue of uh, of of uh, the compatibility of liberty and sovereignty and uh, mm. you know the resort of of our souls in times of difficulty when things happen that we cannot understand is to fly into the arms of the Lord and say, I, I don't understand why this is happening, but I, but it's not important that I understand what's important is that you understand. And, and that's where our pastoral refuge comes that, that he understands and knows and is in complete control. Yeah. I was thinking of Psalm 23 You know, David, the Lord is my shepherd. Yeah. He, he comforts me. He's walking with me. He's there, even if I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. He's with me. I, yeah, I just, I just don't know how these these people that hold this from, from or even from a pastoral perspective can even maintain it um, at any, even for, theologically. Never mind philosophically. I, I just don't know how that can be done. Um, I know it's. I know they try, and uh, that's great. But one of the reasons, and I think one of the benefits will come from your lecture. Lord willing, is that we'll we'll see why it has to be rejected, because as you just said, you give up too much, and um, I, you know I just I, I can't imagine a God, a Father, who Paul says we can call Abba Father, um, who's not intimately acquainted in in dealing with me on a personal level in in my darkest moments as well as my greatest joys. Um, right. I, I, it, it would just boggle the mind and give me no hope whatsoever. Correct. Well, I look forward to uh, to being with you in uh, in a few weeks. Yes, and I know you're very busy, as we talked off air, and have other very important things to attend to. So I won't keep you any longer. But I do appreciate you spending the time, even if we just touched on it, um, just sort of to whet the appetite, as it were, for those who are going to come or maybe thinking of coming uh, to hear more on this subject, which I think you've already indicated is, has very serious pastoral implications 
um, in the church, in the ministry. And so it'll be really a pleasure to hear you uh, then um, in March. Thanks. So thank you, sir, for, for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast. I, I hope it's a, a benefit for you. Uh, if, if you do have any concerns or complaints, I get them. It does happen, believe it or not. Um, but if you do have any, if you have anything nice you want to say, <laughs> I'll take that too. Uh, you can write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook in addition to that. You know, everybody's into the whole social network thing, right? So get on board, follow us there, and we post updates on a regular basis through those different mediums as we um, as we get the information. So until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.